Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Pivot Point. Thank you for tuning in. I love knowing that you're tuning in, checking out the show, and then getting feedback from you. I know I said this last week, but it's so true. Love hearing from you. Pivot point at jsdibiase.com. Send me an email. Let me know what you're thinking. So what's going on out there? Um, I can tell you what's going on over here. Shifting, the fall. And you know, I don't know about you, but when it comes to fall, I want to be outdoors. I want to take walks. I want to smell fresh air. I want to have great apples, make apple pie. And honestly, I'm not going to get that here in LA. So another thing to ponder about for me. You know how everybody in the pandemic, because it's getting a bit long in the tooth here, that we're all really doing these deep evaluations. Well, that's mine. Once again, I'm here. What am I doing here in the fall? I need to be somewhere else where the leaves turn color. I can get great apple turnovers, gluten-free. Anyway, that's what's going on here. Hey, I got a poem I want to share with you. It's from David White. He's one of my favorite poets. It's called Start Close In. I'm not going to read it all. I just want to read the first stanza. You ready? Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. Let that sit for a bit. As we do our creative work and our creative journey and we wake up every day and you start wondering what's next, what do I want to focus on today, or how can I have the time to do that creative exploration that I want? You know, we talked about curiosity a couple of weeks ago. I'm reminded about starting close in. It's actually my theme for the year. Start close in. Don't take the second step or the third. Start with the first thing. Close in. The step you don't want to take. That's the part that gets me. (laughs) Find it online. I just did a quick Google search and I wrote David White and it's with a Y, W H Y T E. And just write, start close in, and you'll find the whole poem. It's really great. It's, it's, it, uh, it's inspiring. It's motivating. And I wanted to share that with you today. Okay. My guest today, boy, I, I am so thrilled. Wait, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to play something for you, and then I'm going to tell you who my guest is. All right. Check this out. Now I had the time of my life No, I never felt like this before Yes, I swear it's a truth And I owe it all to you Cause You know, that song still gives me goosebumps. Amazing, right? I mean, it's so great. I wish I could play the whole thing for you. I got something else I want to play for you. Hold on. 
Check this out. can always tell the, the songs of the 80s because of the, the uh, great snare drum and those bells. <laughs> Lots of reverb. So what are those songs? Time of My Life and Hungry Eyes. And my guest today is Frankie Previtt. So Frankie co-wrote the songs with John Nicola. And uh, John was supposed to be on the podcast today as well, and uh, but something came up and he wasn't able to make it. And uh, so this is Frankie and I, and uh, you know we were waiting for John. So you're gonna hear Frankie and I just kind of bantering around, talking, and then we kind of realized that something came up for John and he wasn't gonna make it. So we carried on, and what an amazing journey this man has had and still is having. Wait till you hear how the lyrics came to him for time of my life. There's something so inspirational about allowing creativity to come to you, as well as putting yourself in the position to receive it. You know, you've got to, it's a, it's a two-way street, I guess I want to say. It is a partnership. That's probably the better way of putting it. It's such a great conversation. I can't wait to share it. And, you know, I'm just going to say, hang in there to the end. There is some great sound bites, great advice, great wisdom that Frankie shares. And uh, I've pulled them off, you know, as sound bites as well. So you'll hear it in social media. When I, you know, do the social media thing for the show. But when you're listening, I'm telling you, we've got a payoff here. Frankie, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate your time and wisdom. And uh, let's do it again. Let's do a follow-up. All right. Here it is. Frankie Previtt and I chatting it up. How are you, Frankie? How you doing, my friend? Good. So you probably don't know this, or maybe you do, um, but I was the music editor on Dirty Dancing. That's pretty yeah. cool. So you know Jimmy? Oh, I know Jimmy. Oh, my <laughs> God. Amazing. I, I would love to get him on my show. Uh, I just, uh, first and foremost, just to thank him. Okay. Be- because I was in my... In my twenties, we should probably talk about all this when when uh, you want John. Son, so you can. Hey, uh, how do you pronounce John's last name? I'm Italian. I would call it John Di Nicola. Well, that's it. That's it. Is it Di Nicola? Yes. Okay, great. I've heard other people pronounce it uh, Di Nicola. I'm like, I'm like, what's that? that? That's stupidness. <laughs> <laughs> that's American. That's American. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh man! And where are you? Are you on uh, East I, Coast time? I am on in the East Coast. I'm about 
uh, five, six miles from Asbury Park in a town called Oceanport, which is by Red Bank. Yep. And so that's store. New York, up, up, upstate New York, right? Well, he, he has a place in the city, but, you know, since the pandemic, he's been upstate for about two years or so. <clears throat> and um, he has quite a piece of land up there, like 270 acres. Who's now? Wait, who are we talking about? John Nicola. John, wow. Yeah, he has a huge farm and, and uh, he took a barn, that a, a big barn, and he converted it into a recording studio. And there's oh, lakes nice. on the property. There's, I mean, it's like unbelievable. Imagine 270 some acres of land. Yeah, I can. You know, and it's cold. You know, he's upstate, up by Albany, up there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He gets great apples, I'm sure, though. I'm sure, uh, and I'm sure the leaves have already turned. <laughs> yeah. And so is his studio for bands or does he, he does it, just do uh, his own stuff? Really for himself to write songs. And he's done, he realized, you know, and I've told him many times in writing songs, I said, you know, you're shy with your voice and you don't want to mm. sing, you know, and you because he gives, sometimes gives me his thoughts about melodies. And uh, so he decided, you know, he has all this idle time and that he would just like take a bunch of the songs that he really loved and uh, record them and try to get them placed. So, mm -hmm. and so while he's doing that, he goes, well, let me throw a rough vocal on some of these songs just so people can hear the melody and stuff like that. And in doing so, he goes, you know what? These sound pretty good. And so he released a record last year called The Why Because. And on that record, he did Hungry Eyes. He did Time of My Life. He did uh, two or three other songs that we wrote together. And believe it or not, his version of Hungry Eyes went to number 22 on the charts. Yes. Wow. And at the same time that was happening, I had written a song in, in Moscow on a songwriting summit okay. to Moscow with 25 other songwriters. So Barry Mann, Mike Stoller, Cindy Lauper, Desmond Child, mm. all of these songwriters. And I got chosen to go. And so I wrote this song called One World with a blind Estonian who thought he was Ray Charles. <laughs> he was the only one out of all these other 25 you know their top 25 songwriters that had any soul you know and this guy comes in and he's singing like ray charles and wow. everybody was like well we want to write with that guy and he said yeah. everybody can't write with sergey so we're going to put names in a hat and you're going to pick out a name and that's who you're writing with and i picked out sergey Oh, Frankie. Okay. And, I, and so I wrote a song called One World with him and Pamela Philip Olin, who worked with Frank Sinatra, for Frank Sinatra and Whitney Houston and Patti LaBelle and all these people. <clears throat> and so this song was recorded by Earth, Wind and Fire, but nothing never released because Columbia <clears throat> was like, well, it's going to interfere with one of their records. And, you know, we don't want to interfere with them. And so they never released the record. So go forward 25 years and this pandemic happens mm. and I call up uh, Pamela, who I wrote the song with, and I said, you know what, maybe we should re-record One World and put it out as a charity event and raise money for, you know, musicians that don't have money, can't pay their bills, yeah. actors yeah. and uh, the First Responders Children's Foundation. Oh, that's great. So that's what we did. And while that song, it got recorded by all of these like Grammy Award winning, you know, singers and people that work with, uh, you know, Toto and all, all of these mm -hmm. bands. And they did it from their homes. They just sent the files in to, to this uh, producer. That's, guy. that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And the song came out incredible. It was yeah. when John's Hungry Eyes was 22, One World was 25. Wow. <laughs> Way to go, you guys. Way to go. You know, two Amazing. songs on the charts at the same time, you know, 30 years later. That's so fun. Yeah. Did you guys end up keeping your publishing? 
So that question is an interesting question because when I got the call from Linda Gottlieb, I believe her name was, and she was, yes, the eyes oh, rolled. And that's yes, how my eyes yes. rolled after I talked to her for a while. And she said to me, you know, um, all right, we like this song, Time of My Life. You know, and Jimmy had called me to write the song. There's a whole story about that as well, uh, which I'll tell yeah. you when, when John comes on. And she called and said, you know, we like the song. And uh, do you have any other songs? So I said, yeah, I got this song that I'm right. You know, I wrote for my record for the Frankie and the Knockouts fourth record called Hungry Eyes. I can send that to you. So, OK. So when she called back, she goes, you know, we like both songs. So we'll give you a thousand bucks a song. And I'm like, really? Uh-huh. A thousand uh-huh. bucks? And I said, tell you what, I'm going to make you the deal of your life. Linda." I said, Give me thirty five hundred a song and let me keep my publishing. <laughs> and she was like, "Done, done," because they didn't really think too much of the movie or anything. They were going to put it out and go directly to uh, VHS, I guess, at the time. Yeah, that's and, what Festron did. Yeah, and they were going to go out and just two weeks in the in the theaters and then dump it. And by the time two weeks was up in the theaters, 300,000 people back ordered the record. And by the time RCA could print a record, a million records were back ordered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they were all scrambling and like, we got to get some records printed. And That's so, so great. You know, Joe Public made this movie and made this song happen. You know, RCA mm-hmm. and all these people take the bow. And, you know, they, obviously, once things got rolling, they jumped on board. but they didn't have the same belief as the public. Well, I'll tell you from my experience working on the film. Were you with Vestron at that time or, or no, I'm, I'm independent. Okay. So I got hired as an independent person and I ended up working with Jimmy almost daily at a certain point. Hmm. I used to live in Stanford, Connecticut. And that's where he is. That's where he lives. So he would drive me home late nights, you know. Yes. In his in his car. Oh, he wouldn't be driving. I know. But he'd have a car. Yeah. Would drive me. I've been up. And he would. I've been up there because he was the president of Millennium Records. Yes. The label yeah. that Frankie and the Knockouts was on, and that's our connection. Yeah. You no, know, back in 1981, you know, I had a hit with that uh, band, Frankie and the Knockouts, and Jimmy was part of that reason that happened. He would always give me life lessons. Oh, he always does, and that's Jimmy in the Car. Is amazing. He's a big brother. And, um, oh my gosh! And um, but working on the movie, what I witnessed was nobody really believed in the movie. It was a movie. We I know. Working on I it. know. Except for Jimmy. From what I saw of him, he he really pushed this thing to go where it needed to go. For some reason, he saw a vision. Yeah. He saw the payoff. He just thought this really had had an opportunity to become something that it became. And right. you're right. The public, the public made it what it is. I mean, I know people who saw it three, four, five times. There's a like, club of women that is called the Thousand Club that have seen it a thousand times. Now that's called the Get a Life Club, you know. Oh my gosh. So talk wow. about seeing it a few times. Well there's there's women out there that are really dedicated to this yeah. movie and created the phenomenon. You know, when Jimmy called me and I, I guess I can tell the story because John's not coming on here for some reason. I don't know where John is, but this may just be the Frankie interview. We'll do John another day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when Jimmy Einer called me, I was working on the fourth Frankie and the Knockout record because he shut his label two years prior and yeah. decided to go into film. And they sold us Frankie and the Knockouts to MCA, who tried mm-hmm. to make us sound like Night Ranger and change and bring Night Ranger's producer in and change our sound. And radio was like, nah, nah. Yeah. And so MCA dropped us. And so I am home writing songs. And, you know, I wrote Hungry Eyes and I, I bumped into a guy that I was doing the demos with who turned me on to John DiNicola. And he goes, Here, here's a track from this guy, John DiNicola. Why don't you check it out? And I said, all right. So I listened to it. I said, I, I'd like to write some lyrics. And he goes, hook up with John. And that very first track was the track of Hungry Eyes. And so I wrote that. 
with John. And um, so Jimmy calls me and he goes, listen, I got this little movie I'm working on and I'd like you to write a song for it. I said, Jimmy, I really don't have time. I'm trying to get a deal, a record deal. You know, he goes, make time. This is going to change your life. See, <laughs> see, yeah. And I, and I was like, you're going to change my life. And I'm thinking, well, you did that two years ago. You shut your label down. That kind of changed my life. <laughs> you know? He goes, no, no, I got a really good feeling about this movie. And I, yes. I go, what's the name of the movie, Jimmy? And he goes, Dirty Dancing. And I went, oh, my God, Jimmy's doing porn. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking he's doing a porn movie. And he goes, no, oh no, this is, this is a really good little movie. And, and I, I think, you, you know, I got to talk you into writing a song. He goes, I said, all right, I'll, I'll put something together. And he goes, here's the bad news. I said, what? He goes, there's already 149 songs submitted for that scene. I go, really? He goes, well, they turned them down. They turned all those yeah. songs down. And he goes, so get me something like in two weeks. And he goes, and it has to be seven minutes long because it's the last scene. And I'm like, God, I got to write MacArthur Park here. You know, I've got to. I know, right? You know, so I call up John because, you know, I'm writing songs with him. And I go, here's an opportunity. You know, baby meets Johnny and, and the father doesn't like the kid. That's what I know. And I said, but it has to be like a dance track. So they gave us a couple of like uh, Irene Cara, what a feeling. Jimmy mm -hmm. said, it could be like that. So John sends me a track and I'm listening to the track and I play it over the phone to Jimmy. And he goes, you know what? I, I really like the music, make it a song. So I'm on my way to the studio, exit 140 on the Garden State Parkway. Uh-huh. And I put this cassette into my dashboard and I exit 140 Garden State Parkway. I pay the toll and the music comes on and I start jamming. And that's how I write songs. I have to find yeah. the melody. And when I find the melody, usually phonetic sounds come out of me. So I'm going, in the name of my life, in the name of my life. Go, what the hell am I saying? And I scribble time of my life on an envelope. And that's wow. where the seed of that song, because I didn't really know what the movie was about. And so yeah. after I submit it and I meet Patrick Swayze at the Academy Awards. I am getting goosebumps by this story. This is amazing. <laughs> I meet Patrick Swayze and he pulls me aside and he goes, I got to talk to you. I said, what's up, Pat? And he goes, I need to know who sang the demo. I said, okay. I said, I sang it with Rochelle Capelli. I need to know who wrote the lyrics. I said, I wrote the lyrics. I go, why is all this so important? He goes, because we had turned down 149 songs. We had already rehearsed the scene to that movie, to that scene, to a Lionel Richie song. Mm -hmm. And and we were like, let you know, good song, but it's not our song. And, you know, let's get this movie over with. And Emil Ardolino, the director, walks in. He goes, wait a minute. One more cassette. We might as well listen to it. And we, they put it on and we all looked at each other and went, is this song great or are we desperate? You know? And he goes, so we decided that day. And they filmed that a sequence. So they filmed that last scene, I believe, first. Mm -hmm. And he said, we filmed that day to you singing Time of My Life with that girl. I said, yeah, Rochelle. And he goes, so when it breaks down and it gets real quiet and I lip sync, that's to you. I'm lip syncing to you, not to Bill Medley. And he goes, this, this song changed the camaraderie of every actor, of it, the director. All of a sudden, you were like, holy shit, what just happened? Let's go make a movie. Mm -hmm. And then they filmed the next day to me singing Hungry Eyes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love that song, too. Yeah, it's a, it's, That's a great song. Yeah, it's a good song as well. You know, Hungry Eyes was more Frankie and the Knockouts, more in my ballpark as a songwriter, singer. Mm, mm -hmm. And uh, I sell those original demos of Hungry Eyes and Time of My Life that they filmed the movie to, <laughs> and I donate the money to Pancreatic Cancer. Oh, that's great. Yeah, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network in Patrick's memory. Oh. I've ra we've raised because John obviously is involved in, you know, 
giving mm-hmm. up his share for them and Donnie Markowitz as well. Um, probably $25,000, $30,000 worth of nice. people that have purchased the demos. If you go on Facebook, uh, Dirty Dancing Demos, and it'll come up and you can purchase it and the money goes right to them. Oh, that's amazing. You know, it's, it's a part of history that has culturally changed um, just the song has become like an iconic song, which blows my mind. I got this uh, email from ASCAP, who monitors, you know, mm-hmm. all the songs being played in the world. And the top 20 songs of all time, number one, guess what number one is? See if you can guess what number one is. Of all time? Yes. I have no idea. Happy birthday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of you course. Know, n- number five was one of my favorite songs, uh, My Girl by the Temptations. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then number 15 was Time of My Life. Wow. Yeah. And if you look behind me, see this? Uh, right oh, there? yeah. That's the uh, ASCAP song of the year. So the same year, you know, I got these awards, at, the song became the most played song in the world. Amazing. Which is like beyond my dream. Of course. I mean, <laughs> my dream was know. like hear myself sing on a radio. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Jimmy was right. It changed your life. It's your, well, that was my speech at the Academy Awards. I just said, you know, I got a call from this guy, Jimmy Einer, who said he was going to change my life. So I'd like to thank Jimmy Einer for changing my life. <laughs> That's so great. So, so great. Well, look, take me back a little bit now. Um, where are you from? I uh, grew up in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Okay. And, and it's like where Rutgers and, and J&J is. And then I moved, my parents moved outside of New Brunswick to a little town called Middletown. And then I went to college for, you know, out in Iowa for a few years and then came home. And then, you know, uh, instead of graduating college, the day I was supposed to go to graduation, I was with a rock and roll band and, you know, never looked back. Wow. <laughs> so was music always part of your life as, uh, as a kid growing up? Yeah. My dad was an opera singer. So really? Yeah. So there was always, you know, I had to fight those Italian notes, you know, those. those oh, those, sure. My father was listening to Caruso and Mario Lanza. And at 10 years old, I was doing like charity events, singing Be My Love by Mario Lanza or Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's all I knew is that I enjoyed doing that and people were applauding, you know. So it was like planting this seed, you know, and it was being watered by the audience of approval. And, you know, it just kept me going. And and, uh, I remember being 17 and my parents brought this you know, colleges in to my, our home to show these films. And I would be looking out the window. I wouldn't be paying attention. And my parents would leave the room. The guy would go, son, you haven't watched anything. What do you want to do? And I go, I want to be, be a singer. Oh, well, you, you better tell your parents because they're about to waste a lot of money. And mm-hmm. so when they walked back in, this guy dropped a dime on me, you know. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't want to go to school. He wants to be a singer. And my parents said, "Listen, go to school, and we promise that anything you want to be after that, you can be. But just get your education first. Yeah, that's 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 a good deal. Yeah, and I said, "Okay, I'll do that." But all through college, I was in bands, you know. Yeah. And and when I was in college, you know, bands like the Rascals and the Beatles, and oh, yeah. you know, so so that's who was you know, influencing me, uh, you know, the Righteous Brothers. And yeah. I was hearing these like blue notes that I wasn't getting from the Italian notes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Now, did your dad sing at the Met? Like what? Uh, he, was the he, um, he sang um, at uh, Convention Hall in Asbury Park, you know, 5,000 seat, you know, things. Yeah. He was in a, uh, a, uh, a New Jersey based opera group. Mm. And I would go when I was four years old, my mother brought me to uh, this uh, place in Asbury Park Convention Hall. And I remember sitting on her lap and people coughing. And then I remember my father singing Paiachi and he was getting Mm. ready to like hit the high note. 
And I stood up in my chair and I belted the note right before my father could sing it. Oh, no. Oh, no. And the place went nuts. And he just stopped and he went, ladies and gentlemen, my son. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. And so I considered (laughs) that my first gig. That is such an awesome story. Man, don't you wish that was recorded? Oh, yeah, big time. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Now, um, did your dad, uh, um, I, I don't know if your mom and dad have passed now, they but have, yeah. did they get to see your success? I took my mother and father to the Academy Awards with me, and they sat oh. left and right of me. And so they're playing all the songs. And my father's listening to all the, you know, competition. And he goes, Frankie, I heard all the songs. I go, yeah. And he goes, you're going to win. And I, I looked at him. I said, Dad, do not Don't say that. Do not put the Maloki on me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And what did he go? No, son, seriously. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. All right. So you go to college. What did, what did you major in? Um, I majored in my first two years because I love sports in, in physical education. Mm. Then I left that school because I couldn't handle you know, I was in, in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just like I, I was a greaser. And I was with a lot of, you know, corn fred country boys, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I left. And I went to a business school in Delaware and I got a degree <clears throat> in business. Mm. And, um, and the day I was supposed to graduate, like I said, I went on the road and, you know, I always, even every year I was in college, I was in the band. I was coming home on weekends when I lived closer and I would play, you know, in, in uh, clubs on the Jer- in the Jersey shore and then, you know, out yeah. in Iowa, I put a band together and we were the most popular band mm. because, you know, here we are, a bunch of East Coast guys putting together, right. you know, songs and all the fraternities were like, well, we want you for our eternity. And yeah, yeah. You know, they said, you know, the Teeks and, and the Sig Pies and they were like, why don't you join our fraternity? Because they figured they get a free band. And I was like, nah, I don't want, I don't want to be pledged. I don't want people telling me what to do. Well, uh-huh. you don't have to pledge. You, we'll just make you a member. Oh, jeez. And I said, okay. So I, I live with the Sig Pies. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. And um, so after college, you just kept on going on the road? Yeah. How did when you get I, your first My first gig deal? was uh, I was in a cover band. I went up to Boston. I was playing up there. And I said to the leader of the group, I said, you know, it's great that you guys do all these covers. What do you think about doing some original stuff? And he goes, we're a cover band. We don't want to do any originals and don't bring it up again. I said, okay. So when I went back home, I started looking through the local newspaper called The Aquarium. And I looked down and he says, "Uh, if you feel that you're as good as any singer, you know, that is on a record today, we are looking for a singer that plays a horn. Well, I didn't play a horn. You know, I, I picked up a saxophone in college and drove my roommate crazy for about, you know, 15 minutes. Uh-huh. So I went for the audition. It was in New York at a club called the Cheetah, which. Wait, wait. you went for an audition, but you didn't play a horn. So what did correct. you bring? Well, I, I played enough where we're like, burr, burr, burr. I could play one or, you know, I could play notes. I couldn't riff or anything. Right. Okay. So I went there and this band was like a psychedelic horn man. And they were playing also Sprock Zarathustra from Richard Strauss, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they were doing songs from Moby Grape and, and uh, Buffalo Springfield, songs that I was doing. Oh, wow. I was doing Sam and Dave and Otis Redding, you know. Mm. So I went the next day after hearing them and they said, okay. Uh, do you know this uh, Buffalo Springfield song? Grooving? Yeah, no. Do you know this song? No. Well, here's one from the electric, uh, blah, 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 called Grooving is Easy. No. Well, what do you know? And I said, uh, try a little tenderness from Otis Redding. And they go, great. we could probably 
get you through that. Let, let's let's. All right, guys, ready? So I sang "Try a Little Tenderness," and they they all stopped and they looked and they went, "Okay, you got the gig." I go, oh, great. Nice. And they go, Let, let's hear you play horn. I go, oh, not so great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay. So I took my sax and I said, what's the song? Well, it's called Grooving is Easy by the Electric Flag. I go, how's it go? And they went, bum, 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 ba, da, da, ba, bum, 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 ba, da, da, ba, ba, bum, 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 ba, da, da, ba, ba, ba. And I go, okay, get it off. Right. So I went, bum, bum. They went, ba, ba, da, da, ba. I went, bum, bum, da, 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 da. <laughs> I just did the counter notes. That's fantastic. You and, did some arranging right there. Right. And they went, well, we know you didn't play the whole, <laughs> the whole thing, but we love your voice and we're going to have the other sax player teach you how to play sax. Oh, nice. So I fronted the band with this other sax player who was teaching me parts to learn. Wow. So were you playing alto? What were you playing? I, I was playing uh, an alto. Yeah. Okay. And that band was called the Oxford Watch Band. And, the, and they were on, <laughs> they, they were on Capitol oh, wow. Records. Wow. And so I went out to Hempstead, Long Island, and I recorded with that band at a, a studio called Ultrasonic. And Ultrasonic Studios, the, the production company was Shadow Morton, John Lindy, and, and Vinny Testa. And Shadow Morton produced the Vanilla Fudge, if you remember that band. Mm -hmm. And um, so we were recording and recording, and it never, you know, we put out a record that didn't really go anywhere. And I said to the drummer, we had just played in Poughkeepsie. And I said, you know, this band that opened for us is really good. They have some really good players and they're doing a lot of original stuff. I said, why don't we, me and you, ask those guys to form a band? And so we did. And we started a band called Bulengus, which was on Mercury Records. When do you guys get these names? <laughs> well, it was called Angus, you know, right. because we lived on a farm. We uh -huh. rented a farm for $100, $110 a month. Oh, my God. All of us lived in this farm uh, in Rhinebeck, New York. Mm, and we beautiful found place. That, there was, uh, that there was a band called Angus in Texas. So we said, you know what? We're bull Angus. <laughs> and so he's so that band, we, we went and played the Sugar Shack in some of these places that we had played with the Oxford Watch Band. Uh -huh. And the um, owner of the club heard us and was like, God, you guys are awesome. He goes, my partner in this club was called the Sugar Shack in Columbus, Ohio, it is Jeff Franklin. And he owns a company called ATI, which is like a big booking agency, Rod Stewart, Deep Purple, mm. the Mac. And I got to get him to hear you guys. So he came to hear us. And he goes, I'm going to get a producer to call you. You're going to do some demos for me. Oh, okay. So this guy calls when we got back home and he's talking to me about, you know, uh, Jeff Franklin told me about the band. And, and I said, and what's your name? He goes, Vinny Testa. And I'm going, Vinny Testa. This is the guy from the production company that I just left. So he doesn't <laughs> know he's talking to me. And I go, Vinny, it's Frankie. And he goes, Frankie who? I said, Frankie Previtt. <laughs> He goes, oh, shoot. He goes, who else is in the band? I said, me and me and Gino, the drummer. He goes, I'll be up tomorrow. So we went up there. He heard us, took us in the studio. We recorded our first record in two weeks. Wow. And then we, we were playing Red Hook High School about a week later. And Vinny calls and he goes, so here's the deal. Where are you playing tonight? I said, Red Hook High School. Okay. Next Saturday, you're playing at Madison Square Garden with Rod Stewart. I said, what? what? He goes, you're on tour with Rod Stewart and Cactus. And I go, you're kidding. What? And that was the start of Bull Angus. And we went on tour for two months with Rod Stewart and Cactus. And then we played with Fleetwood Mac. And then we played with Deep Purple. And, and then did the Pocono Mountain Festival, 300,000 people. Holy cows, Frankie. That I mean, that kind of stuff just does not happen today. I know. I, you know what? I, I believe really from down deep in my soul that I am guided by mm. by spiritually guided mm -hmm. and that you know some of these things that have happened to me are part of my destiny so to speak but not thinking that until it, after it's over when yeah. i look back and 
chronologically look at things and how they turned out and where I am today, I've been blessed. Yeah, sure. You know, Tell me more about that, because when you started talking about how the lyric came to you, how do I want to rephrase this? Um, I'm a composer, right? right? So when I write music, is a lot of, I want to sometimes call it channeling, but people people think that's a little too woo-woo. But it's really like you're hearing it in your head. And it's like what you were doing, you were like just uh, just letting things flow. Correct. And it, and it just kind of comes out. And it, there it is. For me, you know, I have to find that melody. And, and, yeah. and finding the melody, there, there's, there's a certain cadence to that melody. And, and then certain chord changes create different phonic sounds in my head. Mm-hmm. And then I start to channel whatever comes from within me. And I'm like, what the hell am I even saying? You know, <laughs> of my life. Oh, I had the time of my life. Yeah. Dude, it's unbelievable because because you didn't know what the movie was about. Yeah. And you look at that lyric, it's exactly what that movie is all That's about. That's exactly what Patrick said to me. It was like you were standing here writing these lyrics, watching us make the movie. Yeah. I said, no, it's, the man upstairs wrote these lyrics. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty amazing. So um, do you find that sometimes... <sighs> I want to call these things inspirations because I don't want to get like religious and I don't want to get too spiritual, but there is an element, but I found because, you know, I interview people of all types of creativity on my show and almost everybody talks about the same kind of inspiration. And do you find that there are certain things you need to do for yourself to be in the pocket or does it just kind of happen? Is there a discipline with it? Yeah. It, all of that, you know, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. like getting the inspiration that you want to write that day, you know, mm-hmm. part of like, yeah, I feel, I feel in the mood, you know, I'm in the mood. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes in, in writing, I find that if I get like a, a verse, or if I get a, a line for the chorus and I, I get stumped, I don't pressure myself to move on. I stop and wait mm-hmm. for it to call me back. And, mm-hmm. you know, that is so good. Yeah. And has it never called you back? Have you ever had stuff that just. Yeah, I have songs that I, I haven't finished that, yeah. you know, I'd sit there and, and, uh, they don't get finished for one reason or another. It's just that, you know, the, the spiritual, you know, moment hasn't really completed that thought for me yet. You uh-huh. know? And even though I found the melody and I found some of the lyrics, um, it just, you know, I put it down. I, I don't force it. And so, yeah, some are sitting in a draw uncompleted, of course. But I have songs that I, I feel that, uh, I've written that are as good as time of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, having success means enough people agreed that you had success. Yeah. yeah. Know, so it's all about agreement. <clears throat> and, you know, there are songs that John and I wrote that we look at and go, God, this is a great song, you know, and um, they sit in our draw. Yeah. Like where do they belong? Where do yeah. they fit? <clears throat> and some, some make it to, you know, movies uh, we have, John and I have a couple of songs in some movies that, mm-hmm. you know, just Steve Holy sang or, or um, you know, other stars sang that the record company really doesn't get behind and push, you know, the, the song. And you need you need to have the, the movie out there and playing and, and them behind it, and pushing it and, mm-hmm. you know, for things to <clears throat> once once the public hears it, then, you know, the record companies need to jump in and bring it home. And if they don't, you know, it only goes so far. Yeah. 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 There's not too many circumstances that a million people back order time of my life before a record company got on board. There's not that many times that that happened. No, No, I, yeah. I mean, this was, 
unique. I think when the film became, when it, when it had legs and everybody started talking about it, uh, I think so many of us who worked on it was so pleasantly surprised. It's not like we despised the movie. We really liked it, but we didn't think it was going to be a blockbuster success, let alone a, a musical treasure that you can put on this soundtrack and you are transported into a different time, which is yeah, just Yeah, but you know, there's, so there, there's a couple of uh, threads that pull it together. And um, taking, you know, some of the oldies that are in there, which, you know, correlates with 1963 of when the movie was depicted. And then you put in pop songs and that have to now connect somehow with this 1963. So the voice of Bill Medley is the thread that connected mm -hmm. the eras. And all yeah. the nerve hair to time of my life. You know, you hear yeah. you hear that voice, and it's like Righteous Brothers. Yeah. Yes. You know, and now it takes you back in time. And so it's very, very cleverly, whether they meant that or not, I, I don't know, know because know. Bill had turned down singing the song several times. Yes, he, I remember that. He was having a child in New York and he didn't want to go to LA. Until he found out that um, that Jennifer Warren was singing on it, and he always wanted to sing with her. The child got born. The song got born. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So let's go back a little bit again. Now you're on the road opening for all these bands. You know, today um, for somebody to open for somebody, they have to pay the opening act. Yes, to make that happen. This was something different. You didn't have to pay to go on the road with all these people, or did you? Um, well, you talk <clears throat> with, with Bolangas and with Frankie and the Knockouts. Frankie and the Knockouts had much more success than Bolangas. We, we had top 10 hits, Sweetheart, mm -hmm. and then Without You was top 20, and You're My Girl was top 20. So we had three hit records and with that band. We've, we did a lot of um, – we did uh, – Dick Clark a couple of times. We did Solid Gold a couple of times. We did oh my gosh, yeah. Fridays. Remember that show Fridays? Yeah. Yeah. Like Saturday Night Live. Well, Frank, uh, Frankie and the Knockouts was me and Billy, the guitar player from Bull Angus, writing songs and trying to get a record deal and me selling cars out of my driveway to make oh me to pay my rent. <clears throat> and so I met this accountant, Bert Padell. And he was called the accountant of the stars. And he said, you know what? I don't know the first thing about what a good song is or a bad song, but give me your tape and I'll send it out to a few people. So he sent it out to Jimmy Einer, who called me and said, come in. Jimmy heard in my voice that crooner, acapella, yeah. you know, 60s voice, because he was in a band called the Earls and did yes. a song called Remember When. Remember, remember, remember. He was yes. the base of that. Yes. He told me that when we were to go, we were driving to the studio for Time of My Life, and he was telling me that. And I was kind of like going, I can hear that in his voice. I didn't, like, I had no idea he was a singer. Yeah. So he connected with me and said, if you can write me three more songs as good as these songs, I'll give you a record deal. And I said, okay. So I went back to Billy and I said, we got to write three more songs, man. So Billy said, well, let me get this other keyboard player, Blake Levinson, and, and we'll bring him into the mix. And I said, okay. So we wrote three more songs. I brought him into Jimmy and Jimmy goes, all right, I'm going to give you a deal. I like these songs. He goes, you got a band, right? Oh yeah, we got a band. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we never uh -huh. put out. We, we were just in my <laughs> living room writing songs. So uh, right, getting ready to record the record, I wrote Sweetheart. And I go in and I play Sweetheart for Jimmy and he's like, doesn't sound like anything else on the record. It's really pop. You're going to get like pegged as like this pop band. He goes, you sure you want to put that bullet in the gun? You want to be a rock and roll band, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you sure? I go, load the gun. We'll deal with it later. <laughs> wow. So we recorded Sweetheart. It became top 10. 
Now, I get a call from my manager, who's Michael Kleffner, who also managed the Jefferson Starship. And he goes, Mm -hmm. Frankie, watch Fridays this week. My other band is on Jefferson Starship. I said, okay. So I'm watching. And um, toward the end of the show, the announcer comes on, who happens to be um, the same guy who wrote Steinfeld. Um, Larry David, right? So he comes on, he goes, and next week's special guest, Frankie and the Knockouts. And I'm like, oh, shit, there's no band. And so Michael calls and he goes, so what do you think? Next Friday, you're live. I had gigged in three years (laughs) and there was no band. Wow. (laughs) And he goes, you better put a band together by next Friday because you're live on television. I go, really? So I called up a couple of guys that I did the record with, you know, and I said, listen, can, can you just play with me next Friday? We'll, we'll learn Sweetheart and we'll go do the show. And so they said, sure. So we went out. Our first gig ever as a band was live on Fridays. Our second gig was Dick Clark the next day. And on Sunday, we did Solid Gold. And a week later, we were on tour with the Beach Boys for two months. That was the beginning of Frankie and the Knockouts. Dude, what the heck? <laughs> That's my life. That's my stories. <laughs> They're kind Jeez. of, I have all these like little twists to my life that happen, you know, these moments that change my life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, what about like, were you living hand to mouth? Because, you know, you didn't have time of my life that just kind of fills the coffers. You well, have these little things people, here. And yeah. There. When people say to me, because I was, selling cars out of my driveway to, to make enough money to, to take, you know, a voice lesson or, you know, my parents really helped me out because I lived in the apartment downstairs. And so I would go upstairs, you know, I'd had dinner and they would give me $25 a week to go take a voice lesson. Oh, what <clears throat> great parents. I know. I know. And then I sold cars. A friend of mine owned a uh, worked for a car lot. He'd take in a trade and he'd go, Here, here's this car, you know, for a hundred bucks. Just go sell it. And so I'd put it in my driveway. I put an ad in the newspaper and I'd make two, three hundred dollars a car. And that that's what kept me alive from having to play in a cover band and learn a bunch of cover songs so I could write. Right. Yeah. So I, I did that for about three years until I got, you know, Frankie and the Knockouts. And how old were you when Frankie and the Knockouts happened? 31. 31. Yeah. You know, it was kind of late in the day for pop stars. Yeah. You know, to That's be, what I'm saying. Yeah. Getting record did deals you, and doing it. Wow, dude. And did you ever feel like this isn't just, it's just not going to happen? Yeah, I did. And and when, as soon as I, I said to myself, you know, I don't think this is going to happen. I'm sitting in my apartment that my parents gave me with a showman head uh, a amplifier and a, a mattress and my dog. That was it. That's all I had. Oh, gosh, and, you're breaking my heart and, right there. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should do something else. And I started crying. And yeah. Tears are like pouring out of my head. And I'm going, you know what? Anything I could cry this hard over means I shouldn't be quitting. Something yeah. telling me to stick to this, that there's going to be something better for me. Oh, Frankie, yeah. that's just amazing. Yeah, that, that's special to be able to hear that, to be able to encourage yourself with those words. That's just amazing. But you know, I probably wouldn't have hung in there without the support of my parents. Because mm. every time I would like, you know, feel this, my mother, especially my mother, was, Don't you ever quit? You can do this. You know, we believe in you. You have the apartment. Wow. So, that, and, and my dad, but my mother was more of the outspoken one. Mm-hmm. And, and um, she was, she was like heartbroken when my dad had to quit singing to support a family, my, my sister mm-hmm. and myself. And so he started working for Merck and then would sing as a hobby as, as opposed to a living. And she was like, no, you, you can do this. You can please mm. stop. That's just amazing. And what about your sister? Does she have the same musical gifts? And she, what happened uh, there? she took many years of piano lessons. She's a good piano player. 
but she ended up, she's a brainiac. She, she has a doctor in biochemistry. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. wow. she graduated so, from Princeton. Wow, man. So, okay. So you get Frankie and the knockouts did that. So that started bringing in some cash, but it did, it was like only a couple of months. Yeah. Frankie and, and, then, and then what happened? It was survival money, you know? Yeah. And yeah. That money went very, very quickly. I bet it did. You know, yeah. trying to stay on the road with the band. Uh, I paid the band more than I got paid because I was making, you know, royalties from Sweetheart. And not that they were like over the top royalties, but at least it supplemented that I could pay my rent. And where, you know, if I couldn't pay these guys enough, they were going to leave. And so what yeah. I did was I paid them more, but not only did I pay them more, I made them a member by giving them points. Oh, okay. On the, rec- on the record. And I gave them a percentage of the merch. Nice. You know, so they had something to gain by staying with me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I made them a member. Yeah. How smart. That so what was that part of your business education that I'm sure that I'm sure that came from somewhere. <laughs> but you know, trying to be fair that yeah. they were putting in their time. And they weren't going to have a windfall once things really happened that I needed to share with them to to get the best out of them. Yeah. And feel a part of something. Mm -hmm. You know, when Tico Torres was the second drummer in that band who plays with Bon Jovi, Tico. And and he said to me after, you know, he joined Bon Jovi, he goes, you know, I would tell John all the time what you did. And he goes, well, that's great. That's Frankie. That's not me. He goes, yeah. he goes, so there's not many, many band leaders that did, you know, do what you do. And I said, well, it's just make, made just good sense to me to do that. You know, yes. if we're going to call ourselves a brotherhood, you know, and, and, you know, be hugging each other, you want to feel like you're really a part of it. Yeah. You got ownership, just in, you got ownership in this. Yes. Yeah. So smart. So, so smart. And so then what happened once the, once you're off the road? What happened after that? You know, um, Frankie and the Knockouts, uh, you know, broke up after MCA, you know, decided that they wanted to sound like Night Ranger. And I just came back home and I started, you know, writing songs again. And it took from 1985 to late 1986 when Jimmy called. So there was that year and change that I started selling cars again. Oh, wow. Yeah. And making money that way. And, you know, I had a little bit of money socked away. The good news is my parents gave me rent free that apartment. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I only had to pay for my electric and my phone and, and uh, you know, cover my bills, which kept things at a minimal. But I had during um, right before Frankie and the knockouts, right after Bull Angus, when I moved home. Um, I ran into a girl that I used to date and Lynn Coulthaw. And she said, guess who I married? And I said, I have no idea, Lynn. She goes, I married Art Cass. He was the president of Buddha Records. And I go, really? She goes, I want him to hear you sing. And I said, great, I'll sing for him. So she told him about me and he turned me on to Tony Camillo, who who produced Gladys Knight and the Pips, Midnight Train Mm -hmm. to Georgia. And he had a studio about 10 miles from where I lived in his basement. And that's where Midnight Train to Georgia was recorded. And so I went down there and I started singing for Tony. And he goes, okay, this white boy can sing, you know. And and so he told Art, I I would give him a deal. So Art said, okay, start recording. And so every time I would write a rock song, it would go in Tony's drawer. If I wrote an R&B song, it would get recorded. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Phyllis Hyman was on that on that label, who was a really good jazz R&B singer. And so my demos started making it up to Buddha Records and Art was playing them in, in his office. And Phyllis Hyman walks in and goes, who the hell is that? And, and he holds up the picture. He goes, damn, that white boy can sing. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I wasn't getting the energy that the rock and roll was given me yeah. from the R&B. So I decided that I would do a blue-eyed soul rock and roll band. Mm-hmm. 
And I called Billy up, the guitar player from Bolangus, and I just said, let's put together some rock music and I can sing some like blue eyed soul over it. And that's what Frankie the knockouts. That's, that's how that started. Wow. That's amazing, man. And then, so after time of my life, did, did, you know, you, so it opened up doors, I'm sure for you to people write with me, write with me and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And did, did people expect you to be like, write me another one of those? I think everybody thought that, you know, being that, you know, you have an Academy Award and won all these accolades that, you know, you have the formula for success. And yeah. I'm a pop songwriter, you know, so I do when I write a song, I, I'm not writing it to, to, you know, kind of flounder. I want it to be a hit and be on the radio. So I have a formula of, you know, how I write and how where I hear things going and how mm. I hear a chorus and how it should, you know, um, kind of grab you, you know, so, so it touches you and then where to break it down, how to build it again. And, and, and all of that came, a lot of that came from Tony Camillo sitting there mm. watching him because he had perfect pitch and he had a doctorate in music and he mm. would sit there with the gap with the, uh, uh, you know, Bob Babbitt, who was like one of the most famous bass players on Motown, all, all the Motown mm -hmm. records would play on my stuff. Mm. And the Brecker brothers were playing horns on my stuff. And, and, you know, like 10 strings were there. He was orchestrating. And being he had perfect pitch, he was like, here, play that. <laughs> you know, and I would sit there and watch him and go to school. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, people would think, okay, this guy wrote a hit song and, and he's Hungry Eyes too, and that's a good song. So Michael Lloyd would be calling. Mm. And, and Frankie, can you write for this movie, you know, Avenging Angelo with, with uh, Sylvester Stallone? And sure. You know, so we, we would start writing again. And I would call John and I would call other people that I write with. And, you know, that continues. Mm. That's you know, because of, you know, the success of, you know, the phenomenon that I've, I'm involved with. Yeah. Yeah, man. Frankie, what an amazing journey. What an amazing life you've had. Well, yeah, have. it's true. It, it, and it continues. You know, I have shows that I produce now. Um, a show, I, I recently got married. Oh, congratulations. Like, two months ago to uh, a gal named Lisa Sherman. And she's a former Rockette. Uh -huh. and she was a Broadway star and also had her own TV show in New Zealand for nine years. And she's an unbelievable singer dancer. So uh, we put a, a, a tribute, a celebration to James Taylor, Carly Simon, Carol King. Mm. And we have a 10 piece band that backs her. And we sold the Count Basie out in 22 minutes. Wow. In Red Bank. And they, so they put on a second show. So, we're putting that show out and we're, we're gigging around and doing that. So it's a really, really good tribute to some incredible troubadours, three mm -hmm. American troubadours. I mean, the music, every song is a hit record, mm -hmm. you know, from those three iconic songwriters. That's so good. So that's what I'm doing now. Plus the, uh, you know, the charities, the mm. are really important to me, the pancreatic cancer action network and the, the uh, one world charity. Mm -hmm. So oneworldoursong.com, you can go listen to One World. There you go, everybody. Check that out. That's fantastic. Frankie, I can't thank you enough for taking the time today, chatting with me. This was so much fun, man. What a so cool. So cool. I, I'm glad that we had a chance. You know, we we really didn't have an interview. We we kind of had a conversation. That's how my show goes. That's it. We we have a conversation. That's and all these gems are right there. Oh, Joseph, it was really great talking to you. And uh, anytime you want to talk again, just give me a shout. You know, at the end of every podcast, I'm always like, right? Or wasn't that what I was talking about? And I feel the same way about this one. I think I feel that way with everybody. I, I'm so inspired by the courage to pursue their passion. 
And I think about Frankie and sitting in that apartment and selling cars to make ends meet. And then thinking about what if it doesn't work out and crying. I totally understand that. I remember my own life thinking I will never work in the film industry. It was a very, very dark day of my soul. So thank you, Frankie, for your vulnerability and honesty. All right, everybody, next week, buckle up for this one. His name is Richard Human with two N's, an amazing artist that has had exhibits all over the world. Can't wait to share his story. In the meantime, remember, if he's doing it, why not you? <laughs>